You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We are in Judges chapter 10 this morning, and uh, we have almost three whole chapters to cover. Um, So if you've been with us um, during this book of Judges at all, you probably noticed that we've kind of picked up speed a bit, a bit and we've taken on more chunks of Scripture uh, at one time, and that is extremely intentional. Um, w- one reason being that um, it, it is good to take some of these stories all together so that we would hear them in, in larger chunks and we would understand what is going on in the collective story and narrative in Scripture, and then second... Um, As we are beginning to see week after week, uh, the depth of human depravity as shown in the book of Judges is growing greater, or we're seeing greater displays of human depravity as the book progresses. Not, Not only on the part of the Israelites, as we have seen from the beginning of the book, but now we are also seeing it from the judges themselves, the deliverers that God has raised up to judge his people are also uh, just filled with depravity, and we're seeing it on full display. And yet, we're committed to walking through these passages. Even this morning, um, as, as we get there, as, um, as we get uh, towards the end of this book, you'll, you'll see um, that we're going to come across one of the most disturbing sections in all of scripture. Um, And if we aren't committed to walking through books of the Bible, I probably would have skipped over this this morning. I just want you to hear that from me. Uh, And and I say this every once in a while, but 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that the scriptures are breathed out by God. They're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as you hear this story this morning, ask the Spirit of God to apply it to your heart, that you might be better equipped for the good works that he has already prepared for you to walk in. Okay, now, uh, for what everybody's been screaming at me in the back for, fourth and fifth graders, you're now dismissed if there are any fourth and fifth graders in here. Um, Pastor Caleb's in the back, and he's going to take you all to your classrooms. Sorry about that, guys. Just had to get through that. Thank you. I love you. Okay, so that's where we are. We're in the text. This is a difficult passage for us, uh, especially towards the end, and, uh, and we'll see that this morning. I just want you to hear 2 Timothy 3.16 yet again, that it is good for us, that we should learn from it, that it, is, uh, that it is going to help us in our pursuit of righteousness as the children of God. So chapter 10, if you're in the book of Judges, find it with me, verse 1. Here we go. We're going to walk through it together. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. 
and Jair died and was buried in Cayman. Now, last week, we saw Abimelech's rather oppressive reign as judge. And so, thankfully, these next two judges, Tola and Jair, are different. They bring a much-needed relief to Israel. But as it often goes in the book of Judges with the children of um, God, the Israelites, the judge is dead, and the people begin their cycle of rebellion once again. Verse 6. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, we have seen the worship of the Baals and the Ashtaroth throughout our study. Now the text is explicitly saying that there are other gods that the Israelites have begun to worship. In fact, it's a whole bunch of other gods. Baals and the Ashtaroth were the gods that the Canaanites worship, but there are more. And what seems to be happening is that every time another people introduce them to one of their gods... They seem to worship it. And every time they worship the gods of these other people or this other nation, that people, group, or nation begins to oppress them. That's what seems to happen every single time. And now they've added the idol worship of the Ammonites and the Philistines, and so what happens next? They begin to rule over them. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel... And here's what the Lord did. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. You and I know this all too well, personally, that idolatry leads to enslavement. And that's exactly what has happened to the Israelites. But even more interesting than that is that slavery always seems to lead to idolatry. Way back in chapter 3, when Ehud... The judge was raised up as the deliverer. The Ammonites were oppressing the Israelites way back then. So why now? All the way in chapter 10 are the Israelites worshiping the God of the people that were oppressing them. Here's why. Because when an idol gives way to slavery, we think the answer is more of that idol. Here's what I mean. If your God is money, and, and you begin to put all kinds of resources into the stock market. And so you give every ounce. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday at a party my house, okay? It's just fun. I'm not in the stock market, so it sounds like I'm picking on other people. I'm not. It's just fun right now to talk about the stock market because everybody has Robin Hood, right? And so everybody's putting money into these stocks, and you're all to the success of those very stocks, and you start using every ounce of your time to watch those stocks and see what happens. And, and pretty soon, you're going to begin to give more and more and more of your resources to see that your success comes. What, but what happens? What happens when you lose every bit of the money that you invested? You don't just stop because you're destroyed. You have to start again so that you could conquer it, Right? enslavement also leads to further idolatry. So here's what's happening. God gives his people what they want, and it says he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. Verse 8, 
and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? From the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you from their hand. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, hear what the Lord says to his children, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Remember what these gods have done. We've already seen this in the book so far. The idols at Gilgal let Ehud, after he had slayed King Eglon, walk right past them. Why? Because they had absolutely no power to do anything to Ehud. The altar of Baal and the Ashtaroth did nothing when Gideon contended with them. When he went and broke the things down, what did they do? Nothing. The idols have done nothing except enslave and oppress God's people, and yet the Israelites continue to give themselves to their idols. They continue to worship the idols. They continue to want more and more and more from the idols who have done nothing for them. And so God says, go to them. You, you, want, you want salvation? Go to those idols. Go to the gods who you've been giving every ounce of your worship and see what kind of salvation they'll bring to you. See how they will liberate your family. Go to them. I'm not going to offer my protection to you any longer. Now, God is not saying that he's removing his covenant faithfulness from them. He is simply saying, man, I'm not going to protect you in the way that you have been protected. I'm done with that. You go, you go and give yourselves to the idols and see how they're going to save you. And so God says, you keep worshiping them. Go cry out to the gods that you've placed your affection on. Let them save you in this desperate time. Two, two questions Two quick questions for us as we're observing the text. One, why in the world do we give ourselves, people, us, in this room today, if you're joining with us online, why in the world do we give ourselves to false worship and then in our time of trouble cry out to the Lord? Why do we do that? Second, how have your gods that you've given yourself to come through for you in your time of need and distress. Verse 15. Look there in the text with me. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, the Israelites seem, in verse 15, to have changed their tone from what they had with the Lord in verse 10, haven't they? 
There they realized that they were in some sort of predicament and needed relief, but that's all they realized. But when God removes his very hand of protection from them and told them to get some help from the idols in which they had been giving their affection to, in which they so loved and adored, they must have had a change of heart, if you will. Now, this is the kind of language of repentance here in verse 15. Because no longer the Israelites are they concerned with the consequences of their sin. They say, God, you can do whatever you want to us, whatever fits your will. They're only begging that God would show them mercy. God, you don't have to help me. That's how we come to God in repentance. You would be just not to help me, but God, I ask that you would in your mercy come through. After they repent, they walk it out in obedience, the text says, by putting away their foreign gods among them and serving the Lord. And then we get this beautiful line there in the text. And he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. The long-suffering of the Lord we see yet again here in the text. How slow to anger our God is. So much so that he grows impatient over our own inflicted misery. Verse 17, then the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man that will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Verse one in chapter 11 takes us to that man. And in keeping with many of the judges in the book, of Judges, an unlikely one. Verse 1. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, much like Gideon was. But he, my own comment, had this great cultural flaw, the text says. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, verse 2. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, They drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to kill him. Tim Keller summarizes by saying that Jephthah was a complete outcast and a criminal from a broken home. So here's our judge. He's an unlikely deliverer. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? We've heard that language before, haven't we? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now, do you see the similarities between Israel asking Jephthah to come and lead over them, be their head, and lead them into battle against the Ammonites, and them asking God to come and rescue them? 
And they both give similar answers. Jephthah says, man, don't you remember what you've just done? You, you literally hated me. You threw me out of our father's house. And now you come to me because you're scared and you're in distress. In both cases, God's people, the Israelites, assumed that they were going to be aided, that God was going to come through for them, that Jephthah was going to come through for them. But Jephthah isn't so sure. You're coming, you're coming to me now, here? Israelites assure Jephthah that they want him to lead and will make him their head. So verse 12, Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? So here's what Jephthah does. He's told that he's going to be Israelites' head. He's going to reign over them. He's going to deliver them from oppression. And instead of going straight into battle, he goes to the king and, and tries a little bit of diplomacy. Perhaps we can settle it this way, he hopes. Verse 13. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land, and from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah, again, verse 14, sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and encamped at Jaaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and, and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So we see that Jephthah argues first. I know that was a lot. He just communicated a lot of stuff, but I'm going to summarize it quickly for us. What, what Jephthah is essentially doing is saying, hey, here's, here's the historical perspective. This is exactly what has happened in history. Not, not only has it happened in history, but my people experienced it exactly like this. We just sang about God's goodness and his faithfulness experientially just a moment ago in that last song. This is what God has done. I know it. I can attest to it. This is what he communicated to us. So he, he says, this is historically accurate. The land was never the Ammonites in the first place. And even so, it was won fairly from the Ammonites by the Israelites anyways. That's what's happened, okay? That should be enough. Now in verse 23 and 24, Jephthah moves to more of a theological argument. This is who God is. This is what he's done, verse 23. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? 
and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Listen, the Lord gave Israel the land of the Amorites when he had allowed them to defeat Sion. Jephthah says, surely you would understand that because you would make the exact same argument to us if your God, Chemosh, gave the land to you. And his final argument is that of some sort of legal precedent, beginning in verse 25. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aror and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. Not only had it never been the Ammonites' land, their ancestors had never gone after them in over 300 years for the land, so why do it now? But the king didn't listen, and so war was now a certainty. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah, don't miss this, made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, Several quick observations. Jephthah, the text says, now has the spirit of the Lord upon him. So that means if Jephthah is going to go into war, he's certainly going to have victory on his side. But hear this. Just because the spirit of the Lord was upon him and was certainly going to bring victory into his hand did not mean that all of Jephthah's future actions were righteous. It doesn't mean that everything Jephthah does from this point on is the right thing to do, is the godly thing to do. You and I, if recipients of the new covenant, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, living inside of us. And while it means that we have absolute victory over sin through Christ, and we will have it fully one day, it does not mean that we cannot sin now. You say, I know that all to be true. Because I would say that I have the Spirit of God by faith living inside of me, and yet I find within myself a war. We can and do sin by quenching the work of the Spirit in our lives. And last, Jephthah did not have to make this vow to the Lord. He didn't have to make any vow to the Lord. He decidedly made a vow to the Lord, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But he had done so, so now what? Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. 
Everything is going as expected. Jephthah has the spirit of the Lord upon him. He is getting the victory as he should. Here's where this gets difficult. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble to me for I have already opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, with what seems to be tremendous faith, my father, you, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. I will get into this more in just a few minutes, but again, several initial observations. Some have said, and I understand why they say it, that Jephthah had expected to make an animal sacrifice, that that was the thing in which he was trying to communicate when he made a vow to the Lord. Oh Lord, if you would but give these people into my hands, when I return home, and an animal comes out, I will give a burnt offering of that animal to you for your glory. But it doesn't seem like in that day and time that animals would have necessarily been in their homes or in these kinds of houses. And even more compelling, if he had thought that, if he intended to make an animal sacrifice, then why when his daughter being the first thing that came out of his house. Why does that bring him so much sorrow? He could have simply waited for the animal to come out. If he did take a vow, under normal circumstances, you were to keep it, biblically speaking. But even Leviticus which Jephthah should have known about, chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, give a way out, don't miss that, that if a rash vow is made, a sin offering by a lamb or goat can also be made in its stead. Jephthah was a walking against the Lord in making this particular vow. And as recorded in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, he also was going against the Lord in making a sacrificial human vow. Nevertheless, Jephthah sacrificed his one and only child because of a rash, unnecessary, and unprovoked vow that he made to the Lord. 
Now let's see where he goes from here. Chapter 12, verse 1, knowing that this is upon Jephthah, knowing that this was his legacy, that he had sacrificed his one and only daughter, that he had done such an unimaginable deed. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zapon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We've heard this from the Ephraimites before. We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I, my people, had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. The men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you're fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? Ephraimite? Sorry. When he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a city in Gilead. And we see here as the passage concludes that the Gileadites they devised a test to catch the Ephraimites using an arbitrary word. And once again, turns on herself. Jephthah dies and is buried, making an end of his judging over Israel. And we have to conclude that passage saying, what in the world do we have to learn from that? Why in the world would the people of God on a Sunday morning listen to a passage like this? And maybe furthermore, if you're new to Christianity or you've never read this passage, you would say, why in the world has the sovereign God included such a thing in his Bible, in his word to his people? Why in the world would God do this? What in the world can we take from this strange and tragic story? And the first, as we saw in the beginning, is this. Idolatry leads to enslavement. We can't, we can't take that too lightly. We see this early on in chapter 10. Whatever you worship will eventually enslave you. When the Israelites began to worship the gods of other nations, those nations would come and rule over them and oppress them. In Romans chapter 1, flip over into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, in speaking about idolatry of a people, says that some exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And as a result, the text says that God gave them up to those lusts, to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God gave them over to the lusts in which they had already placed their affections on, and they began to rule over them. Whatever you give yourself to in worship is going to take every bit of you. 
We, we can't play with idols. We can't, we can't play with these false gods in our lives. If you give them an inch, they will take every bit of you. They will consume you. And the Israelites are finding that out very quickly. Paul even realizes this himself, that even the transformed heart, those that have been born again, must wrestle with the presence of sin in this life. Although its destructive power is gone and defeated through the cross, although there is no condemnation on this side of heaven or the next, sin still remains in the here and now. And so he cries out at the end of Romans chapter 7, and he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver this body? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And quickly follows it up with, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, Christ has made a way for you not to stay in your idolatry. He ransomed you and he has given you a new seat in the heavenly places. He has given you a new name, a new family. He's given you a new identity where you have given yourself to false worship. Would you hear this text, this strange and tragic text and repent this morning and trust by faith that Christ Jesus has indeed paid for your sin and his resurrection is proof that he has defeated the power of it for all time so you can by his spirit walk in that power today. But don't forget that idolatry leads to enslavement. Second, beware of how the culture has impacted your view of God. Beware of how the culture has impacted your view of God. Now, you could replace culture with all kinds of words. Beware of how your family of origin, be, beware of how these things have impacted your very view of God. For Jephthah, you could have put up upbringing. You, you could have put for him family of upbringing or family of origin. Maybe you this morning could replace it with success or popular Christianity. Lots of us could replace it with this. Beware of how the hurt in your life has affected your view of God. Beware of how your family of origin has impacted your view of God. Beware how the suffering that you've experienced in your life has impacted the way that you view God. Don't miss that. Beware of how all these things cloud and affect how you see and worship God. We can never expect to think clearly about God or ourselves when we are surrounded by and give a ton of credence to the idolatry that is around and in us. Why would we think if we have given ourselves to all kinds of idols? At the beginning of chapter 10, we see that the Israelites had begun to compound their idol worship. They took from this God and this God and this God. And if we have done anything similar, why would we expect to not have been impacted by that in how we see and relate and view the God of the Bible? This, I believe, is some of the reason that Jephthah went through on his oath to kill the first person that walked out of his home. This, I believe, is why when his daughter walked out of his house, he, he knew 
without a shadow of a doubt himself that he must sacrifice his daughter. Romans 12, 2 tells us that we are not to be conformed to this world, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So whereas Jephthah lived in a rather violent society, he was surrounded by all kinds of people who just gave themselves to violence, which certainly proved to desensitize him to all sorts of those things. It certainly proved to desensitize him to the preciousness of life, to the image of God in all people. We may not live in a violent society such as that, but if we're honest with one another, we watch the same things on Netflix, and we give ourselves to those same kinds of things in the video games that we play and in the words that we say, those things at some point are going to have an impact on the way that we see God, the way that we read his word. And so we must not miss that. The text doesn't tell us this explicitly, but certainly the cultural impact had something to do with how he viewed God. Might we as gospel bearers take time and space to evaluate what we give ourselves to regularly to watch and listen to? May we give ourselves space and time, even in this coming week, to evaluate what we've given our children to watch and listen to also. Through the lies of the culture, the practice of idol worship all around him, Jephthah seemed to believe that in order to show God how powerful he believed God to be, that he would sacrifice another human being. Like he thought this from that pagan influences all around him that this was the height of sacrifice. If I could give of another human being, this would show how powerful I think that God is. And that sounds extremely twisted, but that's what the culture around him was doing. But listen, the message of the gospel is the exact opposite of that. Because the message of the gospel tells us that no one could ever appease God except Christ. And his death appeased the wrath of God for every one of his children. And in receiving Christ's forgiveness for sins by faith, we are in turn to lead sacrificial lives ourselves living sacrifices, again, as Romans 12 tells us. Take care to see that what you believe is not a product of bad theology and faulty reasoning, but rather it's from a clear understanding of the nature and character of God as revealed in his word. Take care, Christian. If you believe that you can do anything to appease a holy God, the whole of the Bible, this passage in particular, tells you that you are wholly mistaken. Beware of how the culture has impacted your view of God. Third, God is gracious. He's gracious. How many times throughout this book of Judges can we say, God uses broken people? I was talking to Pastor Mark about that this week when we were discussing the text. 
Man, how many times it seems like it's getting old. God uses broken people. God uses broken people. God works through people despite their sin. How many times are we going to be able to communicate that? Maybe we're going to communicate it until we actually believe it. Jephthah, and it's hard for us to comprehend, is recorded in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, along with Barak and Gideon, and later we'll find out from Samson. Why? Their lives seem to be everything but faith-filled. It's because God is faithful, and he's gracious, and he continues to work through sinful, broken people because of his covenant faithfulness. May we not forget that. How many times are we going to go back to our idols as his people who have experienced his covenant love until we believe that God is better, until we believe that Jesus is better? How many times are we going to let our sin define who we are? How many times are we going to let our family of origin tell us exactly how we're going to live? How many times are we going to let what has happened to us in the past and the hurt that we've experienced in the past and the suffering that has happened to us define how we're going to live today and tomorrow until we believe, until we believe who we are in Christ is all that matters. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to believe the lie that God did not have their best interest at heart. And so as a result, we today, through original sin, have this sinful desire to control God. God, if we could just get you to do the things that we want to do, or if we could just pay God back when we need him, we would, we would do it. I remember talking to a guy several years ago who, when I was get through this, then I would start going back to church that I would, I would do anything and everything that he asked of me if he would just bring my dad through. You see, our desire, sinfully speaking, is to get God to do exactly what we want to do because we don't trust that God has everything good intended for his children. That's not how a relationship with a holy God works, offering to pay him back if he'll just work for good in your life. How would you live differently if you believed that God, for his own glory, was completely committed to you? How would you live differently if you knew that God always loved you, no matter what you did, no matter what you accomplished in this life, that his desire was always to bless you, and he always, for your good, because of his covenant faithfulness, always did exactly what was best for you. What if you believe that? How would you live differently today? Our last point goes with this one, and many of you have heard this before, so I'll combine the two. God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself. Jephthah, because of his upbringing, because of his family of origin, the things that had happened to him in his life felt the need to prove himself before a holy God. Again, how would your life look differently if you didn't feel the need to prove yourself before God, if you didn't feel the need to prove yourself before every single person in this life, that you knew that you were supremely loved, that you knew that your new family defined you? This is who I am. 
I'm a child of God in Christ by the mercy of God, forgiven. It would change the way that you relate to God. It would change the way that you relate to others. Instead of worrying about what others think, it would free you to speak boldly about the gospel of Christ Jesus. If I don't have to prove myself, then I can share without fear of rejection or ridicule. And it doesn't matter what somebody else says to me. If I don't have to prove myself, then right relationship with God isn't based, hear this, on the amount of times that I got into the word this week. It's not based on that. But rather, by time in the word, my time in the word is fueled out of a realization of that acceptance, that God loves me, that he's for me, that he has my best interest at heart, that every situation, no matter how it looks to me, good or bad, is for my good. And your relationship with him isn't based on anything that you do in this life. You obey out of that acceptance, knowing that you are supremely loved, cared for, cherished. A brother reminded me this past week of John chapter 17. Many of you are familiar with Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's one of the most beautiful glimpses of the relationships that exist in the Trinity where we see particularly the Father and the Son's relationship. And Jesus there in John chapter 17 is asking the Father to see to it that we as his children would be one as he and the Father are one. Now, what kind of relationship, maybe you've never thought about this, what kind of relationship did the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have from eternity past? Like, what kind of relationship did the Father and Son have before human creation? You ever thought about that? How did they exist? What was that, what was that like? And the only way that I know to define that is, is just in relational terms. It was sheer delight. It was joy. It was fellowship like you and I long to experience by a holy God that someone would actually know everything about me and still love me despite all of it. The Father, Son, and the Spirit existed in perfect relational harmony for all eternity past. They existed for the delight of one another and in the delight of one another and I haven't thought about it much in this way, but this brother asked me what the father said to the son when he was baptized. Anybody remember? Somebody's saying it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now go with that thought. At that point in Jesus' ministry, how much do we see as to what he's accomplished in this life? almost nothing. We have very little recorded of the first 30 years of Jesus's life. And yet as Jesus is baptized, the father says to the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I've delighted in him throughout all eternity past. This is the fellowship that we've existed in. The father's never disappointed in the son. 
And the son, he's never lacking from anything from his father. And Jesus in John 17 wants us to experience that kind of relationship as the children of God. What if Jephthah would have recognized the covenant faithfulness of his father? that his faithfulness wasn't contingent on the things that he had done for the Father, but it was contingent on the faithfulness of God himself. He loves us because he is love. He's patient with us because he is patient, that he could have repented of the oath that he made before the Father, and he would have been accepted by the Father. We don't need to prove ourselves, nor can we only accept God's love his protection, his grace for us. May we accept that God wants with us the relationship that he has with his son, one, united, joyful, delightful, perfect, and he sent his son to ensure that we would have it. I'll close with just a quick personal example. I tell my kids all the time that I love them, just randomly throughout the day. When I see them, I say, I love you, I love you, I love you. Maybe one day they'll tell me that they tire of it, But at this point in either of their lives, they just love it. And they say it back to me. Even my 16-month-old in his own little way says it back to me. I love you, son. I love you, daughter. And they, they, they communicate it back to me. Never once when they've replied, have they replied in a reciprocating way, have I expected, and I love you, dad, because I cleaned my room because I obeyed my mom, because I respected my friends, because I've been kind to my sibling, etc. No, I much prefer the dad, you want to (laughs) play? That's what I get after I tell him I love him. You want to play? Want to watch something on TV? Want to eat a snack together? They just understand their acceptance with me as their dad. And out of that acceptance is where the obedience in the future is to flow from. God is satisfied with you, Christian, on the basis of Christ. He's satisfied with you because his son has perfectly worked to fulfill the law. He's perfectly obeyed everything that the father commanded, everything. And he delights in you because of what the son has accomplished on the cross. He was worthy from eternity past. He proved himself all the more worthy as we saw it on the cross. And you can live in right relationship with a holy God in Christ's stead. Isn't that good news? How would you live differently if you knew that you were supremely accepted by Father? How would your life look if you knew that it was based on the work of someone else? I want to transition into communion. If you'll just pick up that cup that you have And this meal, every single week, we take it as the body of Christ, those who have placed their faith in Christ Jesus. If you didn't get that on your way in and you are a follower of Christ and you want to participate, would you just raise your hand if you didn't get that element, the elements? Just in keeping with our text this morning, 
I want us to recognize that we have done absolutely nothing to contribute to our salvation. That we have done absolutely nothing to see that we would be called a child of God. We have done absolutely nothing to gain a new birth, to have a transformed heart. And that if we are in Christ, it's only because of God's grace and mercy. It's only because God chose to give us his covenant faithfulness, that he chose to be for us despite our goodness, that he chose to love us despite the way that we would love him in return. And as we take this meal of communion, that is what we are supposed to remember. And so as we think about our own desires in this life, whatever you may be giving yourself to, whatever idols that you find yourself most affectionate towards, whether it be power or success, money, sex, whatever gods in this world that have infiltrated your person and that you've given yourselves to, as we are bombarded with the need as Jephthah was to prove ourselves to every single person around us, to prove ourselves before God, this meal is the reminder that we can do nothing to prove ourselves before a holy God. So here's the deal. When when we come to this meal this morning, when we eat and drink in just a moment, we don't come as powerful individuals. We don't come as people who've said, look what I've done for you, God. And because I've done for this for you, I thank you for saving me. No, we come as a weak and needy people, recognizing that a holy, gracious, loving God has saw to it that we might have a joyful faith-filled relationship with him. That God could look at us in Christ and say, well done. Well done. So we remember the cross of Christ through this meal. We remember and we proclaim his death until he returns again. And so as you take of this bread this morning, would you remember what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, that this is a means of grace for us, his people, the body of Christ, broken for you. As you pull off that next layer, that we would remember Jesus' blood, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Let's pray. And needy, We know that it is nothing that we have done that has given us the privilege of communing with you in prayer. That we even come boldly before you right now because of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. That he has taken upon himself my sin and he has exchanged it and given me his very righteousness so that I stand, so that we, your people, stand before you in your throne room, clothed in his righteousness, loved completely.
cared for unconditionally. Not because of anything that we've done, but because you are gracious. You're faithful. God, I, I pray by your spirit that you would help us as your children to learn that our family of origin does not have a, a defining thing to say as to how we live today and tomorrow. That it is not about the hurt or the suffering that we've experienced in the past, but it is the identity that we find in you as an adopted child into your family. That we've been given all the things that you've given your son Christ. That we've been given all the privileges. We've been seated in the heavenly places. God, I pray this morning for those of us, and it's probably all of us, that are struggling with idols, that are quenching the work of the Spirit in our lives and have placed our affections on money, power, success. We've placed it on our personal worth so that we've had to give ourselves to every single person that we have to prove ourselves to all kinds of people, including you. I pray that you would help us to realize that that is not so in your gospel. Help us to walk that out today. And Father, I pray if there's an individual here that has never experienced your love in Christ, that they might repent of their sins. For it is the only way that they might come before a holy God and that you've made a way through Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.